Welcome to this episode of Talking Constitutions, a series of podcasts in which we explore the constitutional arrangements that frame the day-to-day affairs of politics and that affect our lives in a myriad of ways. Our subject today is current debates on the UK constitution. My name is John Hudson and discussing these questions with me from historical and contemporary perspectives are Stephen Gethins, Nicola McEwen and Catherine Styler. Stephen Gethins has worked in the NGO sector, specialising in peace building, arms control and democracy in the Caucasus and Balkans regions. He's been an MP at Westminster and the Scottish National Party's front bench spokesman for international affairs and Europe. Nicola McEwen is Professor of Territorial Politics at the Centre on Constitutional Change, University of Edinburgh, and Senior Research Fellow with the ESRC initiative, UK in a Changing Europe. Catherine Styler was a Labour member of the European Parliament for 20 years and is now Chief Executive Officer of Creative Commons. So let's just set the scene to begin with. How would you characterise the current situation regarding constitutional arrangements of the nations of the United Kingdom? And let's start off with you, Catherine. I keep coming back to that word fraught. Um, And I think it's fraught in two ways. Uh, We look at what happened with Brexit and the difference in uh, approaches. And even now with COVID and the lifting of restrictions, we see different approaches, different ways of doing things. So just from those two examples and not going into the weeds of constitutional law, you can see there are differences Where are the commonalities? And I think this is the thing with the constitutional debate currently, is we know where there are differences, but what holds us together? And I'm I'm sitting here in in, in my new home in California on President's Day, where we celebrate the the you know the 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 various presidents of 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 America and and teaching that to my ten-year-old. I'm thinking, what binds us, what holds us together and what are the things in common that we have at the moment and how do we celebrate those more effectively? Stephen, do things seem equally fraught to you? Yeah, Catherine used one word fraught. I agree with her. I'm going to use another word, divergent, because I think that the way things are seen in different constituent parts of the UK very much depends on where you're sitting. It's always struck me. I was in London last week and it just strikes me that that, that that we see things very dif- differently in different parts of the UK, whereas in Scotland, the constitutional debate utterly dominates our politics and our political discourse. Same thing in Northern Ireland, where you've got that split. But you go down to, to England, the biggest constituent part, um, and I wonder if where, where divergence is coming is, is increasingly Scotland, like Northern Ireland was before, is fading into the sort of um, difficult to understand and the the hard to understand, which means that people are increasingly switching off. So I'd say divergent at the moment. And I think that's why the conversation that you've put us together for today is such an interesting one, John. And Nicola? We've had fraught, we've had divergent, I'll suggest unsettled, um, challenging, perhaps even fragile. And I say that because the UK is still going through um, one of the biggest constitutional changes is experienced for decades in the context of Brexit, Brexit being a process and not an event. And there is no question that that has destabilised 
the other big constitutional uh, change of recent decades, and that's devolution. Um, and it has affected the devolution settlement, it's affected the relationships between the constituent territories of the United Kingdom, and it's just um, unsettled things. And it's not clear from this vantage point um, what that will mean in the years to come, but it's certainly not a settled picture. For this podcast, we distinguish very much between the constitutional and the political, or if not distinguish, emphasise that they are not identical. But in this context, Stephen, do you think we can distinguish between constitutional difficulties and political difficulties? I think you should be able to, because, you know, after all, the constitutional aspects should be, if you like, the rules within which we play the political game. But because the rules of the political game are, if you like, called into question, I think it's very difficult at the moment to separate the two out. Nicola just used, um, and, and, and actually it's nice how this is flowing, it's not scripted in the slightest, but Nicola used the term unsettled there. And I think that's why we can't distinguish between the two. So if you look at Brexit and the impact that that's had, for example, with the Internal Market Act, why is that so relevant to our current politics? Well, it's relevant to our current politics because that has a big impact on the Scottish government doing its job, for instance, in the various portfolio responsibilities it has. In the context of Brexit, it has an impact on the cost of living in areas like um, the cost of food and drink. So constitutional politics of recent years and the unsettled nature of them I think means that it's incredibly difficult to separate the two out for, for, um, for, from one another. Constitutional politics is not something that merely has an impact on academic discussion or high politics in, 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 in the chambers of parliament. It's something that has a very real impact on people's day-to-day lives. And that's why I think at the moment, it's so difficult to separate the two out. Nicola, would you agree with Stephen on that? Yeah, yeah, I do agree with that. I mean, I think if we if we were talking about Catherine's new home, if we were talking about the United States or somewhere that has um, a codified constitution that sits above um, in some ways or underpins the political uh, developments, then it might be easier to separate the two. But that's not the situation. That's not the arrangements that we have in the United Kingdom. So when we talk about the UK constitution, not always clear exactly what we're talking about. And if you think of one of the um, fundamental aspects of the UK constitution is the doctrine of parliamentary sovereignty um, and that is becoming an, a, a particularly political feature of the arrangements between um, the different territories of the United Kingdom and it affects um, quite fundamentally devolution not just as a set of constitutional arrangements but also how it is operating in practice. Catherine how does it look from across the Atlantic? But it's, it, I think what how Nicholas described it as with a written constitution, you know your rights in a clearer way. And maybe this plays to what Stephen said in the first question, where it's too hard at the moment, it's too difficult. How are we how are we doing these things? And and what struck me in the short time I've been in the US is how even my son's fourth grade social studies book has reference to the constitution and an appendix has the bill of rights has the has all of this information for a 10 year old to have access to and i think that's something where when we're looking at how 
some of our rights are being threatened at the moment in the UK, both in Scotland and in, and 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 at Westminster. There's something there about how are we making the rights we have as citizens of our country? How are we making those rights more accessible? How are we articulating those? How are we using education as a way to be able to bring that um, to the fore? And it's also curious as well when we think about what's happening at a European level, where when we're looking at the digital agenda, the words digital sovereignty is being used more and more. And I think that is an interesting dynamic because, Stephen, you mentioned the, the, the cost yeah. of living. Well, the cost, the rise in cost of living is happening you know, in, in the US as well. And so how are we looking at some of these issues which are really global challenges in terms of digital regulation, in terms of the in terms of the pandemic, in terms of all of those things. So so it is a curious time that we sit here to talk about constitution, parliaments, how we're working, that that issue about how we work more in common. And I think there's something both at a global level, a local level and a national level about what binds us together. Because I think we see very much what's what's tearing us apart. But how do we look at those things that bind us together? And I think those those are some of my reflections. Can I just comment on something that Catherine just said that I found really striking, John? She talks about her 10 year old with his new book in the United States. And at the back, you look at the Constitution. And most of us have sat and had a look at the US Constitution or the US Bill of Rights. And I was really struck. So I remember when I was in Parliament, we were taking really big, profound decisions say around Brexit or around other issues, the internal market bill and elsewhere, as I've, as I've referenced, or if you talk about whether or not Scotland should have a referendum, all these issues. We don't really have that easy, easy reference point in the United Kingdom. And I was just struck. I thought that was really interesting that even a 10 year old can figure out, well, who makes which decisions? Whereas in the UK Parliament, I remember really big decisions being made and actually, the Speaker of the House was having to take legal advice and MPs, Prime Ministers and others didn't have a clue about where these decisions actually sat. I, I, I'll tell you, Stephen, I've been learning a lot from the, the, the Civic Education Social Studies book, which every uh, fourth grader in California has to go through. And it's fascinating because there's also recognition about the past and thinking about the past and where we are in the present and thinking about the future. And I think that that ability to reflect on the history as well is something which, again, we don't have in common across the UK in terms of how we articulate or have, as you say, you, you said this really interesting part at the beginning, Stephen, about that shared understanding. Sometimes we're talking a different language to each other and, and we have to think a bit about how, how we address that. I think we have to be careful of, of not confusing citizenship, education and awareness of rights, entitlements, obligations and so on with a kind of nation building rhetoric which paints a picture and sets out a narrative of who we are as a people. This is what we have in common. Um, I don't think that's something that can just be taught. It has to be practiced. It has to be earned. It has to be celebrated and in, in everyday life and, and people have to feel it yeah um so yeah. if they don't feel it then there's only so far you can go with telling them this is how it is 
and we I think mm. we are starting to see in the United Kingdom now from the UK government there has been perhaps a maybe it comes from a feeling of insecurity around the future of the United Kingdom but there is uh, uh, more of an assertive claim on Britishness, if, if you like, or a, more of an assertive effort to try to build Britain, to to celebrate Britain in a way that isn't necessarily the view of Britishness that is shared in the different parts um, of, of these islands. And that, going back to our discussion about constitutional arrangements, that has an effect on devolution where rather than seeing devolution as a feature of the United Kingdom to celebrate, as federalism is a feature to some extent to celebrate in the, U- the US's constitutional makeup, then it's seen as something to compete against. And I think that's where you get into um, some problems. We've just, we've just been talking about federalism implicitly contrasted with centralism. Uh, we've been talking about written or codified constitutions compared with whatever type of constitution the UK has. And that makes me think about, in a sense, models for constitutions that may be being talked about or which might be adopted. Uh, Nicola, could you just take us through, in a sense, what you see as the main models for constitutional arrangements that have been suggested as solutions for constitutional difficulties? This is always very difficult because there aren't off-the-shelf models that uh, countries decide this is the one for them. Political systems tend to grow and develop in their own ways. And so, for example, we can talk about federalism, but there is no single federal model. You have very many varieties of, of federal constitutional arrangements. What all of those have, though, is a common feature which is a balance of autonomy, self-rule, and coordinated or co-decision making, um, which we call shared rule. So they balance that in different ways, they have different mechanisms to realise that, but in the areas of autonomy they are sovereign within their spheres of jurisdiction. And that's something that doesn't sit very easily alongside parliamentary sovereignty uh, within the United Kingdom. But one of the other peculiarities of the UK is that you have four distinctive um, national territories, one of which is overwhelmingly uh, dominant in terms of population share, in terms of economic might, than all of the others. So it's really difficult to find a, a system from elsewhere that would apply and be useful and suitable for the United Kingdom. I think we have to devise Um, our own constitutional architecture that suits the peculiarities of the United Kingdom. Catherine, would you agree with your recent experience, but also with your European experience, that these have to be self-generated or are there ideas, are there models that can be adopted from elsewhere? I agree with Nicola that it's you can't just take off the shelf and apply it. It has to be you know, in the context of history, in the context of the the needs, the wants, the the desires. And I think that where I see, and and I think, Nicola, you touched upon that earlier, about devolution's new. Constitutionally, devolution is a new concept in terms of the Constitution of the United Kingdom. 
And then we had Brexit on top of that. So we've had a new relationship that came out of, you know, certainly the referendum that we voted on to in terms of Scotland to have our own parliament and, and have a different relationship. And that takes time to bed down. And then on top of that, we've had the challenge of Scotland wanting to remain part of the, the, the EU, but in a broad in the United Kingdom of voting to leave the EU. So it's it's hugely challenging and complex. I mean, part of me is like we should have a written constitution, a federal structure, more, but we know that's not that where's the political will to have any of that? And to get devolution took such a length of time to get there. And we got there. How do we make that work? You know, when I look at you asked John about different European experiences, and one of the things I still think about is proportional systems in terms, but that's more a parliamentarian and a choice issue than than a you know, I think a constitutional choice. But I think that there's something about what I see in the US is certainly the recognition of the different states having very much identity, legal systems that are exercised, representation that is at a local and a a state level. And then the federal is somehow almost quite more removed than the low, certainly the local levels where things, you know, you look at, you know, how educational boards are elected, you look at the, the police system election, you look at, and you look at that very local context about accountability and representation. And I think there's something there. But I agree with Nicola, going back to the original question, that that you can't take something off the shelf. It has to come from our historical relationships, the presidents that has been there, and also what the population is is acceptable to the populace and and, and what, what our citizens. Perhaps this is a case where we should be using far more citizens' assemblies and technology to really dig deeply about what... The, you know, and we started a little bit of that, as you know, in Scotland with the, the climate issue. And But I think there's something and I know that there's been work at a UK level, but maybe there's something more there that needs to be explored and teased out. Stephen, do you want to do some teasing out? Catherine's right in a sense in that devolution is still relatively new. But if you go back to the start of devolution, when you had that asymmetrical devolution, you know, devolution going to Scotland and to Wales and, and, and to Northern Ireland, and all three models looked quite different. But furthermore, we didn't have that overall solution for the whole of the United Kingdom, which has led to some of the difficulties that, that Nicola's outlined and Catherine's outlined. You can't take something off a shelf. So what does that require? That requires focus by the UK government, because this isn't something you can't have the Scottish government saying, well, it doesn't really work for us. Here's something we can impose from, say, Edinburgh, Belfast, or Cardiff. It's something that has to be driven in London in in, in the House of Commons. But part of the problem is when you have that overwhelmingly large part, you know, England in the mix, you've got a problem. So that means that you need to have ownership in London as well. Now, if we go in, I've, I've already spoken to some Conservative strategists, you know, you cannot remove politics from this, who are already starting to think about having, running a general election campaign in 2023 or 2024, with Keir Stammer perched in Nicola Sturgeon's top pocket, just as they ran back in um, 2015. Was it 2015 or was it 2010 when they ran a very similar campaign? Okay. So 
you see that the way that politics, I'm afraid, encroaches into everything. And unless a party in England is willing to be brave, then you've got a challenge. And then if I can just, and this goes back to my original point about us not understanding each other anymore. If Scotland and Northern Ireland's been here for a, for a little while and devolution fall into the too hard to deal with category, they don't get dealt with because that's often the nature of politics. You you park the really difficult issues and there is no benefit for an English political party in solving some of these problems just now. So I, I think this is something that we'll talk about, but getting that UK wide solution driven by a UK party is going to be very, very difficult. Stephen, you, you, you said something there about too difficult to handle again. And I think any thorny, tricky, challenging problem, whether it's a government, whether it's a parliament, whether it's an organisation, you're dealing with that kind of challenge. The thing, the thing that I think is most important is you have to have collective will to address it. And what you're saying, Stephen, is there isn't that because there's just so many other things you're having to deal with. But there's something there, though, Stephen, about actually saying what it is, being honest about how to address a, the most challenging of, of problems. And until there is that honesty, and maybe this is a trust issue as well, who who is being trusted to be able to address this? Because at the moment, there's so much distrust that even, you know, so it's just there's there's something about how how we look at it. And maybe how using organisational approaches to try and think about how to address what's called a wicked problem, a thorny issue, a critical issue, and using it, mechanisms around change to be able to to tease that out. And that takes time, years and years and years. But somehow, somehow someone's got to start. And I just don't. I think we're only teasing around the edges. I think we're still at that kind of tactical solution technical problem rather than really looking at what is a real agile fundamental thorny issue that we all need to address for anything to change. I agree with a lot of that although I would say that although there are particular challenges right now finding ways for the different territories of the United Kingdom to coexist under whichever set of constitutional arrangements that may be that's an ongoing thing. It's not a problem to be solved. It's a feature of our existence. And I think part of the issue, part of the, the challenge, I think, is, is recognising that, is getting into the what you might think of as a federal mindset. So getting into the, the need to take into account the balances between the different territories, the, the diversity that might be there how the managing to live together in ways that don't necessarily mean that everything has to be the same way everywhere and just recognizing that and not treating it as a problem to be fixed I think would maybe get us somewhere. We've been hearing a lot about thorniness and fraughtness and so on but are there any good qualities to the current debate on constitutional matters and if there are or even if there aren't are the possible methods for creating a situation where fertile constitutional debate can take place in the way that Nicola has just been suggesting? Nicola, would you like to make your suggestions of how things can be made more fertile, more creative? 
Catherine mentioned earlier citizens assemblies. I think these are great initiatives, ways to explore with with people beyond the political world what the trade-offs they're willing to accept, the, the challenges, the different ways in which they might be overcome. Opening up debates to wider groups of people is something that I would generally hope could happen. What's interesting in the constitutional issues just now is that it's not really been talked about publicly. There's talk on Twitter, of course, but I'm not really uh, counting that. That might be one of the sort of well, there can be lots of positives around Twitter, but obviously there can be lots of negatives um, as well. Um, and one of the challenges, I think, is that those who are very fixed in their preferences, in their constitutional preferences, tend to view lots of other issues through that lens. Um, and so it can crowd out the nuances, it can crowd out some of the other issues, it can be overwhelmingly dominant. Um, and I think that that's that's a tricky thing. But generally opening up debate to much wider groups of people, giving young people a voice, it's their future fundamentally that we are talking about. And I'm acutely aware that big constitutional decisions have been made that affect young people more than any of the rest of us. And they haven't had much of a voice in that at all. Um, so that's what I would like to see more of. Catherine, what about you for creation of fertile, creative debate? I think technology provides us with a huge opportunity to be able to have greater engagement, to even use crowdsourcing, to be able to uh, um, fund other initiatives that will stem from other initiatives. And I, I was fortunate last week to listen to Olivier from Platonic, which is a uh, they're based in, uh, in you know, they're, they're digital platform developers based in in Spain since uh, 2001. And they have created this uh, go to platform, which is a recognised award winning um, uh, platform for social impact, generation, innovation. And I think and I, I believe they've been involved in the civic, the assemblies, the, the citizen assemblies in Scotland in some way. But I think that there's. There's something powerful about that particular tool to enable, to engage, to to begin to have a greater impact at, at the most local level, to be able to have that insight and engagement where more people are bought in and less people are doing that it's too hard. It's, we don't understand this. We're, we're disengaging because I think at the moment we have a real challenge about how people engage with the political process. And more and more, it's you're all the same. And you said, Stephen, about, you know, you have to see this in the context of the politics we're in. And at the moment, the way things, particularly the lack of trust from the party scandal that has happened at Westminster with our current prime minister, is meaning that the trust in, in politics, politicians across the board has certainly dropped and you're all the same is, is, a, is a phrase that you hear more and more and more when we know that's not the case that that polit politicians are different type you know we're not they're not all the same and as you're the previous politician Stephen and I am as well sometimes that's a very easy uh, phrase to use when in actual fact that, that there's something far more complex there and so how do we use the tools and as, as I say I think that um, technology provides us with an, a clear opportunity of engagement. And how do we do that in a way? Now, so, you know, if you don't have broadband, 
you know, then you can't access. We don't have access to Wi-Fi. How do you access them? So there's something about how do we create an equitable environment so engagement can happen for more people to be part of the change that will develop out of this agile uh, process, which is, you know, the engagement online in a way which has not happened in the way or the the potential there is huge. And we have to tap into that and be where people are at. And a lot of people are engaging online in ways. The communities that are being created in different things are, I mean, just look at the, the climate emergency and how people have coalesced around some of the things uh, there. So there's something about technological solutions, not so, uh, te- technological aiding, not solution, a technological aid to help us as we as we navigate this space. Stephen. Let me talk a wee bit, just just briefly. I think they were all really good points. I mean, first of all, let me touch upon some of the good things that are going on, because, but then I'm going to go, go, go on to the bad things, because often we forget about the good things. I think Nicola and Catherine have both alluded to this, which is, I actually think we've got a reasonably switched on electorate, and not least young people, when it comes to some of the big issues of the day. You know, you speak, and, and, and I think we'll all have had these experiences that people are switched on. If you talk about the biggest issue of the day, the climate emergency, and you speak to, to to younger people, phenomenal input into that. Let's also not forget that we're discussing constitutions and issues that drive enormous passion on both sides that deal with tough issues like identity, where you see yourselves, all the rest of it. And, and we're dealing with it in a in a civic way through democratic mechanisms. That being said, I think there's a danger, which is one of people not feeling that they have a voice. So I know that we've talked about citizens' assembly, technology. These are all really good ideas. I I think, and, and, and you'd expect this from somebody who's involved in politics, a much more political answer, which is, I think the electoral system that you have makes a big difference in making people that they feel some kind of ownership over the decisions that they're making is very important. I'm actually a fan of minority and coalition governments where you try to be much more representative of the population that you serve as a way of engaging with that. And and finally, I'll, I'll, I'll make the point about the politics you're in. I think sometimes we forget about what's driving some of our politics. So if you look at the constitutional debate in Scotland at the moment, something like two thirds of under 55s, and, and, and I'm looking at Nicola, she'll, she knows the polls, you're much better cephalologist than I ever possibly could be, but um, of under 55s, now believe in in independence. Now, the point of that is not a debate around independence, is that there's a challenge there that in certain constituent parts of the UK, young people are switching off or or generations are switching off the state for which they carry a passport. So I, I think there's an onus on us all, firstly, to debate this in a reasonable way and keep that going, because that's how you make progress, regardless of what that progress happens to be. But secondly, um, this is where finding a solution to the, the constitutional aspects of this becomes important because you want to give people a little bit of ownership over the state that you're creating. And that's something that I think is is something that's a, going to be a fundamental part of our debate. We've largely been reviewing the situation, considering problems, searching for good aspects. We'd like to end with a brief speculative statements from each participant. And I'm wondering whether you have one new idea each to help with the solution of constitutional problems in the United Kingdom. Let's start off with you, Catherine. 
Well, I'm, I'm a bit obsessed at the moment, John, at the moment with, with civics education. And so I think that there's something about how we talk about constitutions, how we are able to navigate the historical context we exist within, um, what the current challenges are. And so my takeaway thought is, <laughs> is around civic education in um, from a very young age about what it is to belong, what it is to be and what it is to be part of that bigger picture, which is society and where you exist within and your community that you are existing within. And so I keep coming back to decent civic education, not modern study classes, not but civic education. It shouldn't be that you only get civic education when you're applying to become a British citizen, as my husband did, and have to go through a, a, a test, which I think many of us on this call, even how expert we are, would have failed it. Um, and so there's something deeply important there about how we learn, how we can be critical thinkers. So civics education isn't just about being part, learning about the past and understanding about the present. It's about how you critically think, how you scrutinise, how you question, and how, if you have an issue, how you might want to, to, to make change. So there's something, I think, deeply important about civics education. I'd like to see that across the United Kingdom. And Stephen, your suggestion? I think we badly need a written constitution. I think that that allows you to move from process, because there's so much for debates around process, what constitutes the right to have a referendum, who do we consult about the kind of Brexit you've got, all these issues that dominate our politics at the moment. I think if you set out a clearer set of rules, it just helps everybody so you can get onto the more substantive topics, which is something that aids politics and is why democratic systems are better than others because you interrogate the issues and hopefully, hopefully come to better decisions at the end of it. And Nicola, you get the last word. Well, I don't disagree with either of Stephen or Catherine's suggestions, but my one new idea would be to stop thinking that there is a solution to constitutional problems. There are things that we can do, that there are innovations, but the constitutions, even if you write them down, and codify them are living, breathing things. And so they should be, and they should evolve as society evolves as well. Whatever we do constitutionally, if we do nothing, if we have a federal system, if we have independence, none of that is going to stop things needing to be worked out as we relate to one another on these islands. Brexit has not been a solution to the UK-EU relationship, it's just moved it uh, onto a different kind of terrain um, and created new challenges in managing that relationship. So I think it's thinking about the constitutional issues around these islands as about managing relationships. I think that would be my main contribution and hope for the future. Thank you all. That has been a discussion that's definitely been fertile and doesn't seem to have been fraught. It leaves me to thank Stephen Gethins, Nicola McEwen and Catherine Styler, and thank you for listening.